Luke 1.46, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and returned home. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Open it now to our eyes that we may see all that you intend. Lord, cause us to see the glory of our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are in this same episode as we were last week. This is the visitation between Elizabeth and Mary. Last week we looked at Elizabeth's song in response to Mary's visit. You'll remember that she praised God for the arrival of the Savior who was coming through her young cousin Mary. And she sang to God for his favor upon her, his favor upon the son within her womb, and for Mary's faith in believing the news from the angel that had visited her. You also may remember that at the sound of Mary's voice, the baby John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. He joined in the song of praise that was given to God for the arrival of Emmanuel. In this visit, we have the great and final prophet of the Old Covenant, John the Baptist, connecting here for the first time with the Lord of the New Covenant, Jesus, through their mothers. It's interesting when we think about it that way. The first time these two come together. Phil Riken writes, both sons were joined under one roof, and like the electrical contact between two power stations, the results were explosive. There was a spontaneous outburst of exultant joy as the old covenant greeted the new. What is happening is everything is changing. Everything. Everything that was in the old was now coming true in the arrival of Jesus And so these songs that we're looking at this Advent season, these songs in the Gospel of Luke, really are a picture of that. It's a picture, a symbol of the old fading away and the new being ushered in. One author calls these the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. And in them we see the theme of God's faithfulness, that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that He keeps all of His promises, everything that He foretold, now is coming true. This is the way the writer of Hebrews expresses it. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and here he cites Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It may be hard for us to understand all that the writer of Hebrews is capturing there, and I know that was a long passage, but that's really what we see at the time of Advent. It is the old being ushered out and the new coming in. Advent, this expectant season, expectation of the arrival of Messiah, is a time when this transition takes place. We know that the Father's plan from before time was that he might redeem a people for himself. And as we, we, we've recently looked through Genesis, but as we look through the whole Old Testament, there's, there's a sense of, of discouragement, isn't there, as we look at the way people live their lives. If we think that our hope is in our performance, we would be hopeless based on what we see in Scripture. But thankfully, our hope is not on that, on ourse- in ourselves. It's not on our performance. Our hope is in one who would come to save us. And so all of these promises that were foretold are now being fulfilled. The redemption would come not from our conformity or our self-righteousness, but by a Savior. And that redemption is now unfolding. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's what Advent is about. It is this transition from this this external expectation of of trying to, to conform and to match up to realize that it is beyond our ability to do so. What the law could not do, what it was weakened in the flesh and could not do, God did according to the promise that we saw from the very beginning, didn't we? Right from Genesis 3, the promise was there all along. It was God's intention all along to send the Redeemer. Well, following Elizabeth's song, Mary now responds with a song of her own. And there are those who would argue that this, there's no way that Mary wrote this poem. There's no, no way she sang this song, that she, this poor young girl from Nazareth, simply couldn't have written such beautiful words. They try to attribute it to Elizabeth, the older, wiser cousin, or even some suggest that Luke, the doctor, you know, the educated one, the cultured one, this is probably the one who wrote this. But I would argue that there is no scriptural evidence for either of those. This is clearly Mary's song. Mary was inspired by the Holy Spirit, much like we saw Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit before singing her song, even John the Baptist filled from the Holy, was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb and responding in this leap of joy. Even so, Mary expresses herself with words, ideas, and phrases that are altogether biblical. They sound like scripture, don't they? When we read the Magnificat, it doesn't sound uh, like anything that's foreign. It sounds like it belongs. And the reason is, there, this is almost 
full of quotes or allusions to other passages of Scripture. One scholar says there's at least 12 here. I won't go through all of them that are either direct quotes or allusions to her Bible, our Old Testament. So Mary is the one who Luke later describes as having treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart in Luke 2.19. Mary is one who thought deeply about things, felt things deeply, and she's ultimately a picture of one who, what we read in 2 Timothy 3.15, that from childhood she has known the Holy Scriptures. Mary had been taught. She'd read her Bible. She'd memorized her Bible. She'd even sung from her Bible. And now from that in her heart overflows this song. Now, one particular passage of Scripture that we do see uh, a lot of evidence that it would have inspired her song in a sense is from 1 Samuel 2. We won't read it, but this is the song of Hannah. You remember Hannah? Hannah, the one who was barren. She was unable to have children, but she went to see the prophet. And Eli told her that she would indeed one day have a son And so when she gave birth to Samuel, she dedicated him to the Lord. And when she took him after he was weaned to the temple, that he might serve in the temple at a young age, she sang the song, Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. Listen to just some of the lines of this. My heart exults in the Lord. Sounds like the opening of Mary's song. I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. He raises up the poor from the dust. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. So you see, Mary had had kept these words. She had pondered, she had considered not just the words of the angel in the message to her that Luke records in, in, in chapter 2, but indeed she had done the very this very thing with Scripture. And now out of the overflow of the heart comes this beautiful song of phrase of, of praise. She begins with the statement. My soul magnifies the Lord. This is verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, soul and spirit are not to be distinguished here. They're synonymous. They're synonyms. And this is often what Hebrew writers will do. They'll, they'll use synonyms and build, either repeat themselves for emphasis or to build on, to strengthen the emphasis. Notice that she doesn't say, you know, I magnify the Lord or I rejoice in my God or the God of my salvation. But she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in the God of my salvation. This added language of my soul and my spirit is showing the depth from which she is singing her song. And again, this sounds altogether biblical, doesn't it? Psalm 146.1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 35.3, say to my soul, I am your salvation. There was a there was one I didn't even write in here, but it was in our hymnal because or in our order of worship. Psalm 34. We sang this this morning. Um, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. So this is a, an altogether biblical concept of expression, deep felt emotion, conviction, gratefulness to God. This is exactly what Mary is doing. She wants to magnify God, she says. She wants to make Him appear grand so that others might see and worship Him. And she says, I rejoice in the God of my salvation, or God my Savior. Mary was a sinner in need of salvation. She was not sinless. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. Here she sings of her salvation. Now, some could argue that salvation is more than just spiritual, that you know we could be saved from a, um, an invading army or from a tyrant ruler or even from an illness. We could use that language. But Mary is singing of something much grander than that. 
Maybe she did have Herod in mind, and uh, the tyrant ruler. Maybe she did have the Roman occupation in mind. But you recognize that all of these things that we could, we could say we're being saved from are all temporary, aren't they? I mean, remove Herod and who steps into his place? Remove the Roman occupation and what comes next? Take away the illness and what's going to get us the next time around? All of those salvations are temporary. She is singing of something far greater. She's singing of salvation from sin. Only salvation from sin. Our sinful hearts, this world that has been wrecked by the fall, the consequences of sin, namely death, only that salvation would have eternal value. And this ultimate salvation, which does save us from our greatest problem, our sin, while it delivers us from our sin, ultimately delivers us from all of these other things that we're concerned about being saved from, doesn't it? Because when Christ returns, all that is wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. Following this phrase, well, before I mention this, I, I, I want to point out that through this, throughout this song, Mary makes the gospel especially clear. And this is just one concept within the gospel that she expresses, that she is a sinner in need of a Savior. And that's the first part of understanding the good news of Jesus Christ, is knowing that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And so Mary here sings of that, that we need salvation. In the next line, she gives the reason why she exalts in the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary is not saying that God is rewarding her for her her humility. She is describing her condition. She is describing that as, as far as the world is concerned, she is of no repute. She doesn't have a leg to stand on. She's not going to be the first person picked on the, the, the schoolyard, you know, kickball team. But God has chosen her. So she's not praising herself. She's praising the God who chose her in spite of the fact that she was of no repute, that her condition was one that was humble. In other words, she is praising God for his grace. She is putting the grace of God on display. She didn't earn it. She didn't deserve it. She's not singing. She's not tooting her own horn. The whole song, the whole Magnificat is a song of grace about grace. It's what the gospel is all about. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. No one can boast before the Lord. Not even the one chosen to carry the Messiah. And this, of course, is the next element of the gospel that comes out in the Magnificat. That it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that any and all are saved. And Mary sings of this glorious grace of God. Coming to the end of verse 48, we have to put this together with 49. If you look, the translators capture this, that this is one thought. Uh, it's, It's one sentence. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Some just read that last part of verse 48. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, and support uh, unbiblical ideas about Mary, that she's somehow sinless or has uh, 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 powers that she doesn't have. But this is all one complete thought. For behold, from now on generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She's not tooting her own horn. Again, she's singing the praises of her God. All will call me blessed. Why? Because he has done mighty things for me, and holy is his name. 
This is, this is what Mary is seeing of the blessing, the favor that God has bestowed upon her, that he is mighty, that he has worked wonderful things, and that all generations will come to see this. It's the same idea that we saw throughout Genesis, where you know, our tendency is to make the, the, the person in the story the hero, isn't it? You know, we want to make Joseph or Abraham or Noah the hero of the story. But as we study through Genesis, who's the hero of the story every time? It's God. God is the hero of the story every time, and this is no exception. Mary's not the hero. Her God is. Our God is. He sing, she sings of his power and his holiness, two things that certainly stand out in her circumstances. We see clearly the power of God in the virgin conception, right? This is something that is beyond explanation, beyond human understanding, and yet it was something that was foretold by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 7.14. But what about his holiness? How is that on display here? Well, we might think of the fact that the child she carries is the perfect, sinless son of God. Certainly that displays his holiness. It was the very thing that necessitated a virgin conception because Jesus, although fully God, is fully human as well, but he does not receive the sinful nature that every other human being does because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's another aspect of God's holiness that stands out here beyond his sinlessness. And that is, it's his otherness. Typically, when we think of the word holy, we do think of perfection or sinlessness. But holy also means set apart or other. And that's one of the things that really shines here. You know, the gospel is is really an object lesson in God's holiness. In that God takes things and flips them upside down. He takes the things that, that the world considers foolishness. And he uses them to show his wisdom. He takes things that appear weak to show his strength. It's, it's, it's the way God shows his might and his power. If we read 1 Corinthians 1, 27, 29, in the context of Mary's story, think of how this fits Mary. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. Mary's experience, her story, her testimony points and shines on the light of the gospel, particularly God's holiness on display. Listen to what Johannes Brenz writes. God, therefore, is called holy because his works are hidden far from human reason and are so wonderful that human wisdom cannot comprehend them. For God works glory by disgrace, joy by sorrow, happiness by misery, and life by death. What manner of working can be said to be more wonderful than this? And this wonderful manner of working was also shown forth in Mary. God puts his holiness on display in how he works this out. And here again is another element of the gospel we see in Mary's song. It's not anything that we've done. We're not trusting in anything that we bring. That we bring. That's, that's where God's holiness is on display because we, we think that we contribute, don't we? We think that, that, that we add to the equation, that, that we do our part and God does the rest. It's, 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 it's our natural human inclination to think this way, that we get what we deserve. No. God says that we're hopeless, that we're sinful, that we're wretches, that our hearts are desperately wicked. And there's no hope for us. There's no hope within us apart from his grace toward us. It is his finished work of salvation alone 
When we say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is him alone who has done this work. And Mary sings of the might and the holiness of God in his saving work. The next stanza in verse 50 puts God's mercy and even his immutability on display. God's mercy, the steadfast love, the said of God is never ending. Psalm 36, 5 captures this. It says, O Lord, your steadfast love or mercy extends to the heavens. It's the psalmist's way of saying it never ends. Your faithfulness to the clouds. And Mary sings that all generations sing of this faithful one who never changes. Now, if you notice, this is at the, 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 the song of Mary can really be broken up into four parts. We're not going to look at all those intricacies, but just glance at it and notice that there's clearly of those four parts, there's two and two. There's, there's, there's clearly a halfway point. This is the halfway point. So in the first half, Mary is singing about God's favor to her. It's, it's, it's focused on her as an individual. And in the second half, the focus becomes more global, that God's favor is upon his people everywhere in all times at all points in history. It's almost like a, a personal testimony versus the testimony of the church. But in both halves, she ends with the same thought. Here she phrases it from generation to generation. And in the second half, if you just peek down to verse 55, she phrases it to Abraham and his offspring forever. But the concept is the same. It is God's covenant faithfulness. It is never changing. That from generation to generation, from Abraham and to his offspring forever, this is the God who saves, this is the way he saves, and his people are one. And so his, her concluding thoughts, rather, in both of these parts of her song are to point her hearers to the trustworthiness, the faithfulness of God. You can trust him because he does what he says. In the old covenant and the new covenant, he is the same. From generation to generation, who he is and how he saves is consistent and immutable. He never changes. She also adds that his mercy is for those who fear him. Don't think that this is some kind of transaction as if God offers his mercy if you fear him, like you're making some kind of exchange, but rather his mercy is given by grace and is manifest in those, or, or his mercy demonstrates in those, a healthy fear of God, that we come before him in genuine worship as our creator and redeemer. By his grace, the old passes away and all things become new. We're, we're made new creatures in him. And in that newness of heart is this genuine respect and awe and love for him as our God. His mercy is demonstrated in us by our fear. There's this transformational work of God's grace in bringing us first to repentance and then to godly fear before the one who has saved us. And this, of course, is the next element of the gospel that we see in Mary's song. Repentance. It's demonstrated through God-honoring fear. As we come before the one who righteously judges sin and yet has in his mercy sent His Son to atone for our wickedness. We come before Him and agree with, we admit that we're sinners, we agree with the fact that we have fallen short of the glory of God. So this gospel message that is woven throughout Mary's song continues into the second part as well, but as I mentioned, it becomes more global in its application in the second part, verses 51 to 55. 
The gospel is good news to us as individuals, but it's also good news to all people in all places and in all times in history, the people who trust God. It's, it is the good news of salvation. But what we don't like to talk about is while it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, the gospel is really not good news to those who don't believe, is it? The gospel is a message of judgment. The gospel is a message that God is going to deal with sin. He's going to judge sin. And those who have rejected him become a a result or a part of that judgment. He's going to conquer sin and death. And in doing so, he's going to destroy sin and its consequences, namely death. And this will ultimately be seen in his final return. But while we look for that time, and we long for that time, for all things to be made right, we also see his reign in our lives. Now, sometimes we have to squint a little bit harder because we get inundated with the news feed around us and we think, Lord, are you on the throne? Where is your power? Show your might. But all you have to do is open your history books. Where is every, what has become of every world power in your history books? They're tourist attractions. We just finished Genesis. Egypt is a tourist attraction. Rome, the Roman Empire, Greek, the Greek Empire. Athens. That's not, I mean, America is going to be that one day too, even though it's known as a world power today. It will one day be a footnote in history, maybe a a tourist attraction. Kingdoms come and go. Presidents and rulers rise and fall. The nations rage and they come to nothing. Why? Because God is on his throne right now. So don't fear Don't let the news feed inform your heart. Let Scripture inform your heart. Let it strengthen your faith. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what Mary is singing. Look, she says, He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The rich he has sent away empty. We see this, this, this statement of judgment. Notice also that it's past tense. This part of her song is all past tense. Right? Why, why is it this, written this way? Well, Mary is speaking prophetically. Again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, she is pointing us to the sureness of what the Messiah will do. We see this in other uh, prophetic literature. For example, a, a passage that's well known to us, I won't read all of it, but Isaiah 53 that speaks looking forward to the coming Messiah. It was written 700 years before Jesus was born, and yet it's written of his death in past tense. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, past tense, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Why past tense? Because it points to the fact that this will so certainly happen that we can write about it in past tense. We can speak about it as if it has already happened. And this is not only true of the Messiah who would come 
and die for our sins, but it's also true in terms of the kingdoms and the rulers and all of these things that Mary is pointing us to. She is pointing us to the surety of God's judgment. But she also points us to the surety of our salvation, doesn't she? She says, he exalts the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, right? Something that we all need. Not only do we need our fears calmed, don't we need to be filled with good things, especially in this time? The word servant, she says he has helped his servant Israel. The word for servant there can also be translated child. It's not a, it's not a derogative term that we might think of with the term servant. We could say this, that he has helped his child Israel. God is to us Abba. He is our dear father. He remembers his promises, the ones given in the past and by remember, I don't mean that God forgets. That's anthropomorphic language, right? We're, just, we're using our own human language to describe. But he remembers the promises. He doesn't forget them. He keeps them. He will always keep them. And Mary now sings of the one who remembers and acts. And the child that she now carries is the fulfillment of all of those promises. It's all coming true, she's saying. It's all coming true right here and right now. I mentioned that she closed both halves or strophes with this idea of covenant faithfulness of God that from generation to generation and then the latter part to Abraham and to his offspring forever. If all of this were simply about the nation of Israel, if all this were about ethnicity or DNA, those of us who were not Jewish would be without hope. This would be meaningless to us, right? But thankfully, this is pointing to something beyond that. We know that God has preserved his people. She sings about this. He's helped his servant Israel. But thankfully, the promises that were given weren't limited to a, an ethnic group or to a nation state. And this is what Paul argues in Romans 9. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This may sound like boring theological explanation, but folks, this is where we find great hope because we are called the children of the promise. We weren't born into the line. Most of us, I don't think, were born into a Jewish line, but we are called the children of the promise. And here he's contrasting. You remember the story, right? Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was where Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands with Hagar. They thought they had to do what God had promised. He was not the child of promise, was he? No, Isaac was the child of promise. He was the one given to them in their old age when it was humanly, seemingly humanly impossible. He was the one given to them as the child of promise. And that is in turn what we are called. Paul makes this even clearer in Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. That's you. That's me. We are, those of us by faith in Christ, are called children of the promise. And so what Mary's song, and really all of these songs that we're looking at demonstrate, is that the old is becoming new. John and Jesus, who were in the room for the first time here in this visitation, John, who would ultimately point to the one to come, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And Jesus, who would then fulfill all that John pointed to, all that he prophesied about, indeed, all that every prophecy 
pointed to. He fulfilled. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that familiar phrase time and time again. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. You see, Jesus is not only the one who gave the promise. Jesus is the promise. And He fulfills the promise. He's done it all. He's done it all for us. And this is the song and the story of Advent. Another reason that Mary closes her song with this covenantal framework is that so that as the story is passed down, everyone who hears, everyone who reads, everyone who sings her song might remember that God is one, that he never changes. His people are one. His plan of salvation is one. From before creation, his plan of redemption is rooted in who he is. And because he cannot change, he is immutable. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. We can be certain that no matter what is happening out there, what's happening in the world, what's happening in our homes, our lives, our jobs, whatever, that because he stays the same, that's where our destiny is rooted. So all of the fear and the anxiety that creeps up in our lives when things don't go as we plan for them to go, this is why we come back to the covenant faithfulness of God. It's because we know He doesn't change. We know He keeps all of His words. She is singing of the surety of our hope in the One who has come that we might know for certain that our future is kept. The Magnificat is this beautiful song, not only as we think of Mary, but also when we think of our own lives. It's a song we can all relate to. This is a picture of our own testimony. Think of this. God has called each of us blessed in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 says, He who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are called blessed. He has demonstrated His power by doing mighty things for us, showing that even in the frailty of our physical bodies, which we become more and more aware of as time goes on, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to do what? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And He has filled us with good things. As Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, we can sing Mary's song with her. We can sing this song with her because it's a story of her salvation. It's not so much the story about Mary, it's a story about her God and what her God has done and what He's done for her, He has also done for us. Yes, she is unique in that she carried the Messiah. We don't have that part of the story. But everything else in terms of her need for a Savior... Uh, her, her faith in God's power to save, um, the holiness of God, the satisfaction that He gives to those who are hungry. All of these things that she sings about are things that you and I can relate to, that you and I can celebrate in this season of Advent. And so we sing this song. We sing it with Mary. We sing this song together because we know that the Savior has come. And so may we, like Mary, rejoice and our God who has saved us. May we magnify the Lord who is holy. He has done great things for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us eyes to see the great things that you have done for us? We can get... Lord, it's so easy for us to get uh, numb 
at times. We're numbed by complacency and coldness that creeps into our hearts. Sometimes we're numbed by the external things that distract us, the the things that that make us angry or, or, or filled with anxiety. It's so easy for our hearts to become cold. Lord, would you take this, your word, and this a picture of your salvation, the gospel echoing out in the Magnificat of Mary, would you take this and fuel our hearts by it? And in doing so, would you melt away those things, Lord, that distract us, that cause our faith to weaken? Would you melt away the worry? Would you melt away the anger and the malice and the bitterness? Would you melt away, Lord, the things that make us anxious? And would you cause our the, the surety of our future that we would be able to see with clarity, as Mary's saying, that the surety of our future, that we would be so certain that you hold us in your hand, that nothing can, nothing can pluck us from your hand, that you are unshakable and therefore our future is unshakable. And would you strengthen our faith in that knowledge as we continue to celebrate the coming of our Savior this Advent season. I pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.